You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week on the Aspie pod, it's all about Southeast Asia. To kick off, Gatra Priandita speaks to Thomas Parks about geopolitics in Southeast Asia. While there's a lot of attention on the US-China rivalry and its implications for the region, Gatra and Tom focus on the different regional dynamics in Southeast Asia, including ASEAN, regional challenges, and the relationships that countries like Australia and Japan have, and how they have changed over time. Hello, my name is Gatra Priandita. I am an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Today, we'll be talking about geopolitics in Southeast Asia. So much of the discourse on international relations and security in Southeast Asia has very much been shrouded by the specter of Sino-American rivalry. The effects of this rivalry are indeed very much felt across Southeast Asia because of the region's proximity to China, the presence of security flashpoints like the South China Sea disputes, and the deep interest in all countries to engage both the United States and China. Now, while dynamics and great power competition are important factors shaping Southeast Asia's strategic environment, they are far from being the only important factors shaping international politics in Southeast Asia. Joining me today to explore some of these other factors and talk about the geopolitics of Southeast Asia is Thomas Sparks. He is currently the Asia Foundation's country representative in Thailand. Tom is a well-known figure in foreign policy and development circles in Southeast Asia and has also recently published a book on Southeast Asia titled Southeast Asia's Multipolar Future, Averting a New Cold War, which talks about the region's future emergence as an epicenter of an emerging multipolar order. So Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gatra. Thanks for having me. So to just kick it off, can you describe to us the geopolitical landscape of Southeast Asia? Sure. So Southeast Asia obviously is being affected to some extent by U.S.-China rivalry. But as you mentioned in the intro, there's a lot more going on than often meets the eye. Since the end of the Cold War, if you go back to the Cold War, right, that was a period when there was a very clear bipolar system in Southeast Asia where you had a, a communist bloc and a Western bloc that really kind of divided the region. But after the end of the Cold War, you saw the region become really quite diversified, quite broadened partnerships, a whole range of new actors from the outside were getting engaged. And as well, the environment became much more benign, right? So it allowed countries in the region to do more with each other and with other external actors. So today, if you look at Southeast Asia, I would argue that it actually looks much more multipolar. You have a situation where, yes, The U.S. and China are the most important actors, particularly in hard power terms and in terms of scale of their economies. But you have a range of other middle powers and other important powers like Japan, India, Australia, uh, South Korea, and Europe, the U.K., uh, and, and several others. All of these other actors are also deepening their engagement in the region today, and this is being welcomed by countries in the region. And of course, Southeast Asia is also influenced by its history of multilateralism with ASEAN, and ASEAN is creating an environment as well, which is enabling this kind of broader cooperation and broader engagement through platforms like the East East Asia Summit and the ASEAN Regional Forum. So yeah, so it's really diversifying, and I think it looks quite different from the way it looked during the Cold War. There's definitely, I think, a strong preference among Southeast Asian states to sort of maintain equidistant relationships with both great powers and regional powers alike. There, no one really wants dependence, right? And as you sort of talked about it, um, you know, non-alignment is a big thing. Indonesia was a founder of an online movement. Some countries like Myanmar are also formally neutral. They, they've ingrained it into, I think, the constitution. And, and today, the most common behavioral pattern seems to be something called hedging, right? Mm-hmm. 
Now, how do Southeast Asian states generally hedge? Or how do they maintain this equidistant relationship with great powers? Yeah, so the essence of hedging is basically that countries never want to be too close or too distant from any external great power. And what that means effectively is that countries will often have selective cooperation and sometimes selective defiance in their relations with external powers. And if you look at different countries in the region, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, and others, you can see examples of how sometimes, for example, their relationship with China, sometimes they cooperate, right? Either it's on a new uh, infrastructure project or, 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 or some other area, but sometimes they don't, right? And they, they will often push back, often subtle ways, often behind closed doors, but they will find ways as well to push back when they need to. And so what that means is, with each country, their relationship with great powers is constantly in this churn. It's, it's never going to full alignment, right? As we would hear from, say, a, a bandwagoning or a balancing sort of way of looking at the world, it's a lot more complicated than that. So the region is, you know, a bit messy, right? So you've got great powers engaging in the region, but they have this sort of two steps forward, one step back relationship with every country in the region. And countries like this, they benefit from this uncertain environment because it allows them to maximize their room for maneuver, maximize their agency, right? So as a result, you know, the region, I think, is, is quite good at this. Do you see things changing, though, with deepening Sino-American rivalry? I mean, I think in many ways, hedging as a behavioral pattern probably works best in an environment when there is competition, but not severe rivalry. Yeah. That also leads to another factor, which I think is an important part of this broader strategic landscape, which is that there are other actors which are allowing Southeast Asia to broaden their options, right? A really important example is Japan, right? So we often assume that China is the dominant actor in terms of infrastructure assistance in Southeast Asia. Actually, it's Japan. Japan has been the largest provider of infrastructure for some time in Southeast Asia. So what that does for individual Southeast Asian countries is they they may be negotiating for a certain project with both Japan and China and sometimes even other countries as well. And so that gives alternatives, right, to, to, to each individual Southeast Asian country that it may not have in other contexts. So even though the U.S.-China rivalry may be in, increasing, the fact that there are other actors, other autonomous actors that are engaging in Southeast Asia and providing other alternative options, it lessens the impact on the region from what it might otherwise be. I mean, definitely. I, and, and of course, these extra regional powers that you've talked about, so Japan, mm -hmm. Australia, the European Union, India, you've dedicated entire chapters to these countries in your book, right? And just, just focus a bit more on Australia for now, and then we'll get to Japan and other countries as well. What are your thoughts on Australia's foreign policy strategy in Southeast Asia? You know, on what factors does Australia have competitive advantage compared to, say, you know, China compared to, say, Japan and others. Yeah. So Australia has a number of important advantages in the region. Some of them are a bit subtle. Australia, particularly under the current government, the focus on, you know, the search for or finding a strategic equilibrium. This is, of course, the language that Foreign Minister Penny Wong frequently uses. I think that this, this terminology, this way of looking at Southeast Asia is really resonating in the region. It's, it's basically sort of reassuring to Southeast Asian countries that Australia is recognizes and respects countries 
you know, refusal to choose sides, even though it's fairly clear which side Australia has chosen, right? But it recognizes and respects sort of Southeast Asian countries sort of decisions. And as a result, this is also building on a long history as well of Australia acting in a careful and pragmatic way in the region. I've seen this on the ground on many occasions where Australia will engage either diplomatically or on development cooperation in ways that are really, really prioritizing the bilateral relationship. You don't see sort of lecturing or pressuring on key issues around democracy and human rights. You see a much more careful approach. And this basically enables Australia to build higher levels of credibility and trust with with leaders in the region. And so that pragmatism has really paid off now. I mean, we saw, for example, despite the fact that as an economic player, Australia is relatively small. Australia is only about 2 to 3% of ASEAN's overall trade and investment. Yet Australia was invited to be the first comprehensive strategic partner for ASEAN. So Australia has really done a great job of positioning itself at the center of Southeast Asian geopolitics, despite the disadvantage of having a much smaller economic relationship with the region. So yeah, I think in addition, Australia has a very long history of defense cooperation in the region, which is very important, particularly with Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, um, and even Indonesia to some extent. There's there's a long history there and the Philippines as well. So, and Australia is, is benefiting from those relationships now, especially as countries in Southeast Asia are looking to broaden their direct defense partnerships. They're doing more and more with Australia. And so I think that's that's a real strength. Is there anything that Australian officials can learn from other extra-regional powers about how to best engage with Southeast Asia? I mean, you talk about economics being one of Australia's disadvantages, right? Of course, it's very difficult to compete with, say, China when it comes to infrastructure financing or even Japan. Mm-hmm. But what can we learn from Japan and other things or from India or from the EU? Yeah, I mean, on the economic relationship, the economic factor, there's a couple of reasons why – there are natural advantages for the bigger Northeast Asian economies, right? So, you know, Japan, you know, and to some extent China and South Korea, these are resource poor countries that have large supply chains and they are looking for countries like Southeast Asia, those in Southeast Asia to integrate into their supply chains, right? And there's a natural economic complementarity between those kinds of economies. Australia is a different type of economy, right? So there's there's less direct, clear complementarity. Yet Australia, I know, that is, is looking at how to strengthen its economic relations with the region. I understand that DFAT is um, – I actually understand the prime minister today is announcing a new economic strategy for deepening engagement between Australia and Southeast Asia. So, you know, there's a lot to be done, but I think that, you know, the government is moving in a, in a positive direction in that way. Yeah, in terms of what – can be learned from others. Perhaps, for example, Japan. Japan's engagement in Southeast Asia has been, you know, quite consistent over the years with a very consistent message in terms of going even back to the Fukuda Doctrine of 1977, engagement in terms of equals, engagement in terms of um, the importance of Southeast Asia sort of shaping its own future. And the consistency of that engagement is one of the strengths, right, for for Japan in the region. You know, so 
that's a little harder for uh, for Australia to do, but having a, perhaps a bit more consistency between governments in the future could help. But by and large, I see Australia really heading in a in a very strong direction right now in Southeast Asia. Well, I completely agree with you. I think Japan's strength definitely is its consistency, and Australia's approach has definitely improved when it comes to engaging the region. Increasingly, though, many uh, many countries, many extreme regional powers, particularly those that are allied with the United States, are deepening their the strategic alignment to the United States, especially in the context of Sino-American rivalry. Does this undermine how these countries maintain links with Southeast Asia? I mean, how can Japan maintain an, a more independent Southeast Asia policy when perhaps there are expectations in the United States that Japan would total align more? Yeah, no, great question. So. Japan and Australia have a similar challenge, right? So obviously deepening their alliances, uh, their alliance with the United States. And, you know, in both cases, those relationships are reaching new heights, you know, and certainly there's a, a really bright future in terms of those, those U.S. relationships. Yet at the same time, the way that Japan engages in Southeast Asia is very clearly perceived by Southeast Asian leaders as engagement on its own terms, right, in its own way, and is is not in the region seen as operating at the behest of Washington, for example. There's a whole range of examples, right, where Japan has gone its own way in Southeast Asia, whether it be sort of reaching out to governments, you know, in the aftermath of a coup or staying engaged in Myanmar, for example, even in some of the darkest days in that context, and a whole range of other ways as well. Japan engages in Southeast Asia in a way which, which has led the region to see Japan as a very credible, trustworthy actor. And it consistently gets very high marks in terms of from Southeast Asia in terms of um, sort of trust and to do the right thing among the Japanese. So Japan hasn't suffered from, from the, the fact that it, it's engaging in Southeast Asia on its own terms in its own way, which is showing real outcomes in terms of its relations in Southeast Asia. Yet it's also deepening its relations with the United States, right? So we can do both at the same time. The key is how it operates and how it's perceived, right, by Southeast Asian leaders. Now, I would argue that Australia also does this very well at times, right? So certainly I think in the aftermath of the, the announcement with AUKUS, you know, th that obviously had a, a negative impact on Australia's relations in the region, particularly with Indonesia. And in particular, I mean, you would know the details of this uh, quite well, right? In just the week before AUKUS was announced, there was a two plus two dialogue between Australia and Indonesia. And nothing was said, of course, to the Indonesian side that a big announcement was coming. Even if details weren't shared exactly, there was no indication. And of course, that had a pretty big effect, I think, on the relationship, a very important relationship for Australia, as well as other countries in the region. So, you know, the, I think Australia's approach under the current government is definitely moving in the right direction in terms of giving that degree of communication and respect right to the region and i think it's having a positive effect but yeah but i think the fundamentally australia is very good at being able to be a very good us ally and engaging in southeast asia you know as a pragmatic independent autonomous middle power right you can do both at the same time but it's a balancing act, right? And you have to pay attention to communication, pay attention to messaging, and that's very important. I mean, that's very true. I think it's it's extremely difficult trying to balance that well, right? Mm -hmm. I think the prime minister has definitely been trying to engage with Southeast Asian officials and arguing that even though Australia maintains its commitment to, to the U.S. alliance to, and to other arrangements like AUKUS and the Quad Arrangement, 
ASEAN still very much remains a very important part of, of Australia's engagement with Southeast Asia. And agency is an important term that is commonly used, I think, in Prime Minister Albanese's speeches in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And on this, I think this is my one of my favorite parts about your book. It highlights the importance of agency in Southeast Asia, which I think is often set aside in the broader discourse and debates about Southeast Asian geopolitics because we're so engrossed with Sino-American rivalry. Now, given our focus on Sino-American competition, we often forget to consider the importance of some key regional players, countries like Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, and the role that they play in sort of shaping international relations in Southeast Asia. Can you talk about the influence of some of these countries uh, in regional affairs and what role you think they will play in an age of Sino-American rivalry? Yeah, great question. Look, uh, I think countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, you know, uh, Singapore, they play a big role in the dynamics within Southeast Asia. Let me take one example with um, Thailand and, and Vietnam in, in mainland Southeast Asia, right? Thailand has a really big interest in ensuring that countries, its neighboring countries, namely Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia, that they have options, right? That they are not under any kind of duress from an external power. And so Thailand, in its own way, has been trying to find ways to help those countries to either through economic assistance or through some investment, particularly in Laos. And as well has tried to come up with some different regional mechanisms like ACMEX that would enable, you know, development cooperation that would be led by the region, right? Now, some of it's been more effective or impactful than others, right? But it's very clear that Thailand is, is, is trying to help countries, its neighboring countries to keep their room for maneuver as wide as possible, right? Vietnam, I think, is doing the same with Laos and with Cambodia. And Vietnam has an important role, particularly with Laos, with a very long relationship between the two parties. And, and clearly, Vietnam has an interest in ensuring that Laos, you know, even despite some of its challenges with its curtain debt situation, you know, that it has options, that it has other alternatives for investment, for infrastructure, et cetera. So those two countries are going to play a big role in the, in the future of that region. You know, a little bit more controversially with Myanmar, you know, Thailand is, of course, playing an important role in how that current challenge is being, is being sort of managed. Thailand's role, of course, within ASEAN has been, you know, sometimes criticized as not entirely supportive of the five-point consensus. But ultimately, any solution in Myanmar or any support that goes to the millions of, of people who have had to flee Myanmar has got to involve Thailand. Thailand has got to be a part of the solution in Myanmar. And so, you know, a lot of the conversations in Bangkok right now among the international community are how important it is to find ways of supporting and engaging and finding common ground with Thailand to help make some progress in Myanmar. So I, I do think that there's a lot of other examples that I could go into. Singapore's role in terms of foreign direct investment in the rest of ASEAN, Indonesia's role as a, as a global heavyweight in terms of foreign policy and, and uh, in other areas. So these middle powers in Southeast Asia also are themselves becoming bigger and more important in their own right. Right now, more than half of Southeast Asia is upper middle income or high income. 
and within 10 years, that could be as many as seven or even eight uh, countries in the region. So we're looking at a region that is rapidly growing and that's going to become predominantly middle income, upper middle income, you know, within a decade. And so that's, it's a really changing discourse when you have a region that is that rapidly growing and that significant economically. So yeah, I think there's, that's one element that's often missed when people look from the outside they don't take account of those important powers in the region. Well, definitely, I think these kinds of socioeconomic changes and other sets of domestic factors very much shape how Southeast Asian countries behave. I think even more so than many other countries around the world. Domestic politics is very important. Thailand's Myanmar policy very much driven by a lot of domestic vested interest, for example, right? That's why they're so fundamental in sort of finding a solution to what's happening in Myanmar. Now, we are in the midst of election season in Southeast Asia. Thailand has recently, uh, uh, the, the parliament has selected Sreta Tavisin as the prime minister, you know, a toxin ally. Uh, Cambodia has seen a change in leadership as well with the rise of Hun Manet. And Indonesia will also be going to its elections next year in February. And President Jokowi Dodo will be stepping down in October 2024. How important do you think these leadership changes are to Southeast Asian countries? And in particular, how it affects how they behave? The foreign yeah. policies. Yeah, great question. So, I mean, you'd have to look at each country individually, right? But in the Thai case, for example, I think it's going to have some effect, but probably not as big as you might expect, right? Thailand's relationship, for example, with Myanmar, there's really a number of structural factors, right, which compel governments to ensure that they have some connection, right, with the regime in Myanmar. There's always going to be the same kind of interests and challenges in its relations with, with its neighboring countries and with Vietnam, for example. However, I do think that if Thailand can permanently move beyond its challenge from the last 15 years of, of, of military coups and, and governments, often leading to the sort of the internal churn of, of Thai politics has really somewhat limited the, or constrained the ability of Thai foreign policy, right, to have a, more of a leadership role in the region. I think now that we're starting, you know, it's slow and baby steps, right? But we're moving in this direction of Thailand leaving the 2014 coup behind it. I think that is going to take away some of those constraining factors, which have limited Thai foreign policy leadership, right? The, the case with Cambodia is hard to tell. It's very early days, right? Certainly, Hun Manet has inherited the same political system and political party, right? And the structures that sort of underpin that, right? So how much he can change it, we don't know yet. But obviously, his background is very different from his father's, right? So we'll wait and see and see what uh, what happens there. And Indonesia is obviously, it's too early to tell how that might affect him. But anything, any change, even subtle change in Indonesia will you know, sort of ripple across the rest of the region and could have a big impact on ASEAN as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for this interesting conversation. Thanks a lot, Gatra. Zooming in on Indonesia now, Gatra speaks to Natalie Sambi about Indonesian politics and foreign policy. They discuss Indonesia's vision for the world and how it aligns with Australia's, the roles both countries can play in shaping international rules and norms, and how Australia and Indonesia can further strengthen their bilateral relationship, including through education. So Natalie Sambi, welcome to the Aspie podcast and welcome back to Aspie. Very happy to have caught you here in Canberra on your trip to the east. I'm sure you've got a very busy schedule. Now, today I want to talk about a very important relationship, I think, for the two of us from both a personal and professional level, which is the bilateral relationship between Australia and Indonesia. 
So earlier last month, President Jokowi Dodo, or Jokowi, paid either his last or one of his last visits to Australia uh, as president of Indonesia. Now, the joint statement that came out of the visit is notably more specific than previous statements in highlighting the preferred vision of international order in the Indo-Pacific between Australia and Indonesia, which is that it would be a region where collaboration is strong, where competition is managed responsibly, where sovereignty and territorial integrity is respected, and where countries can exercise their agency free from coercion. Now, this seems to be a fairly shared vision of what the international order should look like. Do you agree with this assessment that it is a shared vision of the international order? I think so. And I think it's actually good to see a little bit more flesh in the bones of what Indonesia and Australia see in terms of what the Indo-Pacific is that they want. That wasn't evident in the 2022 joint statement. So it's nice to see a little bit more of that shared development. Um, I think we can see a lot of parallels with the vision that was outlined by Penny Wong's speech um, back in April, you know, at her national press speech, she sort of talked about, you know, a region that was open, stable and prosperous, a predictable region operating by agreed rules, standards and laws where no country dominates. That sounds very much in line with Choco Widodo's vision for the Indo-Pacific, you know, an Indo-Pacific that's open, free and inclusive, free, not necessarily in the liberal sense, but free from coercion, inclusive in the sense that we have all major players involved in strengthening that region um, and therefore no sense of containment. So again, no sense of any country or any system dominating. Mm. So the way I see it, what we've laid out in our own country, what Indonesia has laid out prior to that, there seems to be some natural convergence. And look, I don't think it's anything terribly dissimilar from what other countries in the Indo-Pacific want, particularly when it comes to middle powers. No, I definitely agree. I think, at least within Indonesia's foreign policy discourse, there's a strong sense of uh, anti-hegemonism, whether that be American or Chinese hegemony, right? I mean, there's a preference for multipolarity for this very reason. Now, sure, I mean, I guess we, we both have that common vision of the international order, but there's the, sort of this ongoing debate over the approach over how to best achieve it is still the same. You know, right now, over the bilateral relationship, there's this one school of thought advocated by people like Evan Luxmana, which is that we will see a bilateral relationship shaped by increasing strategic divergence because the two states in many ways maintain very different approaches uh, to the rise in China, of China and the ensuring great power competition. Um, can Australia and Indonesia really address the strategic implications of great power competition as partners when obviously Australia is a U.S. treaty ally, uh, it's committed to things like Quad and AUKUS, whereas Indonesia, uh, you know, very principled on non-alignment, it's, it's very focused on uncentrality, uh, it's also cautious about the United States. Yeah, look, I think there are a lot of different parts to that. You know, I think on the one hand, as we talked in the, in the first part, there's a sense of overlap between what Indonesia and Australia want in the Indo-Pacific and there might be a sense of divergence in terms of outlook. So like you said earlier, Indonesia is non-aligned. And for our listeners, what that means is traditionally within Indonesia's foreign policy and strategic outlook, that it doesn't have any sense of alliances. And traditionally during the Cold War, it did not alliance, align itself with one camp or another. And that's true today, that Indonesia does not want to see itself squarely in a Western camp, and it doesn't want to see itself squarely in a non-Western camp as well. So again, that might be one area of divergence that I think, I agree with our good friend Evan Laksmana, that I think that is a difference in the way in which Indonesia and Australia approach each other. I disagree insofar as how that, what that actually means in practice. I think, yes, on the one hand, Australia is pursuing closer ties with its ally, and we are definitely seen in the Western camp. But in practice, I'm going to go after both Indonesia and Australia here. If both countries actually want to see an Indo-Pacific that's governed by rules and governed by, you know, a, a, a coalition of middle powers um, that doesn't want any particular country to dominate, and that goes for Australia too, then we really have to walk the walk. 
And that means Indonesia not just engaging with larger powers just for economic and material benefit, but actually, you know, walking the walk when it comes to strengthening international rules and international law. That means maybe taking a tougher stance on the invasion of certain territories in Eastern Europe, for instance. Or on the same hand, if Australia is really serious about this sense of strategic equilibrium, then we need to walk the walk in getting other middle or emerging powers in the Indo-Pacific to do more. Whether that looks like Japan, is that South Korea? Do we want to do more with Vietnam? And we know that some of the countries in in the in East Asia are dealing with Chinese aggression. So what more can we do to strengthen their position and international law? What more can they do to strengthen governance within the Pacific, for instance, India, is another one, France is another one. So I think we're all looking to the same thing. We come from different places. Indonesia's birth as a nation and Australia's birth as a nation and the way that we've moved throughout the 20th century have been different. Cool, that's fine. But what we really want is the same thing. And I think the mechanisms that we want actually converge a lot more than we think. Well, that's something completely fair. I mean, I think Australia and Indonesia do share that common middle power identity, right? As medium-sized states, we do both see ourselves as playing a more active role in sort of shaping international rules and order. Both Australia and Indonesia are members of the G20, of MICTA, and many other forums associated with ASEAN. But do you think there is that appetite to sort of be more active in, in sort of creating, you know, the guardrails, as, as Prime Minister Albanese said at Shangri-La, uh, to sort of, I guess, contain in a way the competitive impulses of great powers? Um, do, we really, do we really see officials in Jakarta, in Canberra, wanting to do that? So again, here I'm going to go after both Indonesia and Australia. You're right to point out in your previous question, you say, look, Australia's approach with with regards to Quad and AUKUS may seem like those are things that are antithetical to Indonesia, but Indonesia's really doing the same thing. It's maximizing its ability to flirt and engage with other kinds of multilateral institutions, BRICS being one of them, um, as a means of maximizing its strategic interests. Like all countries in, in the international environment, we all have the same tools of statecraft. Right, whether we just have different colors and we have different flags, but we're all using the same set of tools. But the point is, if we want to talk about, as you said just now, what are the guardrails? What is Australia? What are Australia and Indonesia actually going to do to strengthen the international system? Let's look at ASEAN. So, you know, Joko Widodo last year, you know, Indonesia was ahead of ASEAN. It had, you know, ASEAN as the epicentrum of growth. Again, that sounds like it's an obvious thing. ASEAN was developed in order to be able to support the development of these countries. I mean, originally it was seen as a, a grouping that was designed to prevent intra, intra-regional conflict, but it's been now sort of evolving in that sense. But what has Indonesia really done to strengthen ASEAN as a body, the central body for managing ASEAN issues? And Australia, we talk about ASEAN centrality all the time. We talk about ASEAN being an epicenter of regional architecture, but what have we actually done in a material sense to be able to strengthen that at the same time? So yes, again, we have the same tools of statecraft. We have both outlined ASEAN centrality as being, in Indonesia's case, the cornerstone of Indonesian foreign policy. For us, ASEAN being the gateway for the rest of the region, ASEAN centrality. But again, what are we materially doing to ensure that ASEAN is not being torn apart by a lot of its domestic issues, that its member states are not being bullied in certain areas of the South China Sea? What are we really doing to invest in the East Asia Summit? What are we doing to strengthen ADMM Plus? What are we doing to strengthen the ASEAN Regional Forum? So those are the things I would look at. And also, what are the linkages between ASEAN-related mechanisms and other kinds of multilateral organisations, whether that's in the Pacific Islands, whether that's in the Indian Ocean region as well? Yeah, no, that, that particular aspect is very, very much underexplored, I feel. I mean, I think there is some interest in ASEAN to sort of engage more with regional bodies um, outside of Southeast Asia. 
Um, I mean, the European Union is obviously, uh, a, you know, a, a traditional uh, partner, but I think there's, there is growing interest in engaging Pacific Island states as well. And, and you're right, I think, um, you know, it, it's both on Australia and Indonesia to also work on establishing these guardrails. Indonesia, as currently chair of ASEAN, as well as the biggest country in Southeast Asia, has an important role to play in sort of imposing the normative constraints, right, within the East Asia Summit and so on. Um, but at the same time, Australia, being a core member of other um, uh, regional mechanisms in the Indo-Pacific, also must play a role there. Now, I just want to sort of zero in more specifically on on the bilateral relationship between Australia and Indonesia, um, because, of course, uh, we're sort of at that stage of bilateral relations where things are actually going pretty well. I mean, there hasn't been any serious problems in the relationship in a while. Um, I think the biggest great crisis was uh, East Timor, of course. Um, and, and there have been a few incidents along, you know, in, in the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, but in many ways, underpinning the complexity of Australia-Indonesia relations it's a common refrain that there is a persistent lack of deep knowledge of the other. There's some kind of distrust. Do you agree with this contention? Do you, is, there a, is there a trust problem? It's interesting to ask whether or not those two things are related phenomenon. So I agree on both sides. I think on the one hand, we are lacking in a sense of deep understanding of each other in terms of our culture, our politics, our history. And on the other sense, I think we do have a lack of mistrust. But again, that can be disaggregated in many levels. So let's start with the first one. Um, as someone who's grown up in Australia with Indonesian heritage, I haven't seen a lot of in our education system, whether that's been in my childhood or adolescence or even in the education system today, that has focused on understanding our new region, whether that's Southeast Asia or the Pacific Islands. And yes, we've had periods of time where we've had great interest in Indonesian in Indonesian language study. We've had a very vibrant, you know, a teacher see Australian in-country, the Consortium for In-Country Study um, has had a very sort of vibrant background, but... Things are not necessarily the case anymore. I mean, we have a decline, as we know, of Indonesian language. But we also don't see, if we're talking about ASEAN centrality, again, we don't see the centrality of Southeast Asia in the way that we think about the world. We don't have a centrality of thinking about the Pacific Islands, our nearest neighbours, before we actually go and look abroad and think about K-pop or Japanese manga and things like that. So what eludes us about interest in Southeast Asia in terms of its culture? Why are we not teaching politics and history as a matter of everyday education to understand the region and better understand ourselves. We have large diasporic communities in this country as well. Our foreign minister comes from Southeast Asia, amongst other things. So again, I, I would like to see personally and professionally a deeper understanding of our regional neighbours in Southeast Asia and the Pacific in our education system, across our bureaucracies and our military. I mean, you and I have both lectured at the War College. And we can see there's a positive reception at the kernel level to education about Indonesia. My question persistently is why are they receiving this depth of knowledge about Indonesia at the kernel level? Uh, how are we not getting this kind of natural education about our region at the, at the cadet level, at the academy? And what would it cost us to augment that and then deepen and invest in that throughout just looking at the military throughout their careers? Could that not be done at the same way at the Department of Defence through their graduate their graduate program as well. So that's just one side, and that's just looking you know, through it from a Canberra lens, looking at it as a community-wide, whole-of-country thing. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done to explore you know, Southeast Asian literature, Southeast Asian film festivals, amongst other things. I know the consul, Indonesian Consul General in Perth has got a very sort of um, a lot of enthusiasm right now for promoting Indonesian film and Southeast Asian literature. That's fantastic. That's the stuff, stuff that we can start with. So you know, we'll see where that goes. What about mistrust, you asked? 
Do you think there's mistrust in the relationship between Australia and, or distrust between Australia and Indonesia? It's it's interesting because I think in many ways the establishment of the Lombok Treaty between Australia and Indonesia really addressed that that core area of distrust between the two countries, which is that Australia may have, I guess, some aspirations over uh, Indonesia's uh, territorial body right. Papua, uh, basically. Really, Papua, yes. Yeah. With that agreement in mind, that, that's basically a non-aggression pact, one, but also a common common understanding that Australia will respect Indonesia's territorial integrity. So that alone probably means that, I mean, with that, with that specific issue being addressed, there is probably no issue with distrust within the official level. I, I do agree that there are still problems about misunderstandings, you know, that, that, you know, and, and this, this comes about in, in numerous ways. I guess public perceptions of Australian public perceptions of Indonesia is demonstrated in Lowy polls, for example. A lot of people still see Indonesia as being a lot more religiously fanatic or dictatorial than well, it actually not is. not a democracy. Or not a democracy, that's right. But vice versa, of course, Indonesian perceptions of Australia are often shaped by this idea of Australia being a lot more racist, Australia being anti-Islam, Australia being, uh, of course, the deputy sheriff of the United States in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, these, these beliefs in many ways still permeate both at the public and, to some extent, limited extent, government level and military level. Of course, this, this creates avenues for disagreements and, and misinterpretations. And I, just to sort of build on what you were saying about the quality of, I, th- I guess, Australian knowledge of Southeast Asia, I would, I would probably say the same thing about the quality of Indonesian perceptions and knowledge about Australia. I don't think there's enough that we know about Australia. I think increasingly we are seeing more Indonesian students coming to Australia, although that's been somewhat, you know, we, we see somewhat decline because of COVID-19. Hopefully they'll come back again soon. Whether that has an effect, though, on, on uh, improving perceptions of Australia is obviously yet to be seen. In any case, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of homework for both sides, I feel. It's always a double-edged sword. I mean, I always go back to the anecdote of Prime, Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, who came to Australia and actually left with a more negative perception of the country itself. So it's sometimes familiarity can also you know, dis, you know, create a disillusionment. But yes, it's about creating more positive exchanges as far as possible. Let's take Joko Widodo's idea of habits of dialogue. You know, his idea that the Indo-Pacific is built on, you know, building blocks of small arrangements and habits of dialogue. I mean, there's, we might have had periods of mistrust in our relationship, but moving forward, that's as best as we can do, creating those interfaces, people to people, organization to organization, think tank to think tank. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's a lot of foundations for cooperation already. I mean, we already have a lot of organizations focused on bilateral relationship at the business youth level. There's already some degree of think tank cooperation as well. I mean, at ASPE, we work together with a lot of Indonesian think tanks, and not just the traditionally the, the established ones, with others as well. It's just, I guess, about moving uh, moving that forward, right? Mm. Now, the one, one dimension of the relationship where there is actually there's quite developed is probably the defense uh, relationship. It's often said to be the bedrock of Australia-Indonesia relations. And of course, it's got a long history going back to the early days of the Cold War. Um, you know, both Australia and Indonesia right now are in the process of establishing a defense cooperation agreement, which aims to, among other things, increase dialogue, um, but also things like strengthen interoperability and enhance practical arrangements. I mean, you're, you're, you've been very much part of this arrangement, I think, in many ways, given the fact that you're a lecturer at Defence College, right? And, and you've, you've engaged with Australian and Indonesian defence officials throughout your career as a, as, a, as a think tanker. What factors do you think uh, is driving, firstly, the creation of this arrangement? And what are we really missing? I think the fact that we have shared challenges has to be one of them. 
I mean, the fact that Indonesia is rising as a power, you can talk about that particular narrative that Indonesia is going to be a power, a power of consequence in the future and Australia ought to have good relations with Indonesia, I think is definitely one part of that, that we ought to have those good working relationships in security and defence with countries like India, Japan, South Korea, so on and so forth. But I think the fact is that we have shared challenges and our defence forces are used in a range of different contingencies today, not just in the future. And a lot of those, as in the case of the Indonesian military, revolves around humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. So there is no, I mean, I know this is not necessarily where defence planners are going with, they're talking about this DCA, but for our listeners, I mean, if you're thinking about what's the necessity between building a closer defence relationship with Indonesia, one not need look further than the intensification of natural disasters within, within our region, even in Australia. And at least having that ease of cooperation, those habits of familiarity between our two defence forces is certainly part of that. Not all of it, but again, I mean, looking at the higher end of things, if we want to be more interoperable for future contingencies, starting to build those relationships today is an important part of that. Um, so I think there are many there are many elements of it, mm. but um, I think looking to the most practical, what I think is the most fruitful when we look at multilateral exercises. So Indonesia was a... Um, not a participant, but a staff contributing nation to exercise the you know humanitarian assistance exercise led by Australia and France. Those kinds of multilateral, uh, you know, um, participation opportunities for Indonesia, I think, are important in terms of not just familiar familiarising Australia and Indonesia, but with its partners in the region. And we should encourage more of that. And so, if a bilateral defence agreement can help push that along then we should be playing that part, and particularly in, in helping support Indonesia's maritime capacities, but also looking for those trilateral and multilateral opportunities as well. There's a common argument that that defense agreements are often best driven by some of some sense of strategic vision, right? Uh, and, and of course, for strategic- Hopefully not a crisis. Hopefully not a crisis. Right. But oftentimes strategic vision is focused on potential crises, um, often state-based. Uh, do you think- the defense relationship between our two countries are, you know, is, is it best driven by some degree of strategic vision or vision about the international order? Or is it best driven by focusing on practical areas of cooperation? I mean, I think it has to, this is a cop-out answer, but I think it has to be a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, we started this conversation talking about an overlap, a convergence between the strategic vision between Indonesia and Australia. And I think some idea of investing in our defense force cooperation has to be guided by that. And as I said earlier, some of that might be Part of that shared strategic vision might be the shared problems that we're going to deal with. So if we want a stable, prosperous region where there is access and equitable access to climate change resilience architecture, for instance, or the capacity for people to have equal access to be rescued and provided that kind of support, if that's the kind of Indo-Pacific you want to live in and contribute to, then you must be also cooperating on the kind of issues of the day. Um, because issues like climate change related or climate change linked you know, vulnerabilities within our region, they're not going away anytime soon. And so, yes, that shared vision of having a, an equitable and, and just Indo-Pacific um, in which all countries have the right to be safe and peoples have the right to be safe and, and, and living in a good way, then we are working on the issues together. So I think those two things go hand in hand. What do you think? Well, definitely. I think we should never underestimate the power of these practical exchanges, uh, practical measures, because they they do foster the kinds of exchanges that are eventually fundamental to build the foundations for future cooperation, the kinds of uh, uh, you know collaboration between lower-level officials, for example, between those in the military, 
they will become be coming in you know quite handy. Currently, right now, we do see a lot of practical exchanges. Right again, just going back to your old defense uh, at the War College, you see a lot of Indonesian defense officials coming in as students. What I think do you under Minister Prabowo? I think we've seen the largest number of cadets at during in in Adfa and RMC as well as well as instructors. Yeah. So I think that's something to also consider. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, what do you think these exchanges will achieve? This is a hard thing to measure because after the East Timor crisis, we had a lot of senior Australian defence and Indonesian military officials saying, well, it was those good relations that we cultivated during the 90s that was that made a contribution to ensuring that Australia and Indonesia did not end up in what could have been a much bloodier sort of contingency at the time. That may be true. The real difficulty with this is that those things are really hard to measure, but we know that we have to keep doing them. And again, if we've got a way of, of measuring that, I think we need to we need to figure that out. And that's that's very difficult to measure the investment that you make for something that may or may not happen. But we know things like the Defence Cooperation Program, the DCP, needs to be protected. If we're looking at investing in high-end capability, if we're looking at investing in nuclear submarines, the infrastructure that goes all around that, we also need to be thinking about the soft elements of engaging a region. So we always need to be talking along alongside Yes, what are we going to be doing as part of AUKUS and and the Defence Strategic Review? But what are those other elements that need to be enduring? Um, I was at a launch, a paper launch of um, colleagues Andrew Carr and Stefan Fruling last week, and the Chief of Army, to his credit, talked about the importance of language investment within the ADF, within the Defence Organisation. And I mean, obviously, I'm all for that. Anything that deepens our ability to be able to work together with um, is something that should be protected, and we need to keep talking about that in some way. So yeah, that's that's my addition to that point. Now, you spoke about trilaterals earlier on and, and the importance to also engage other countries in, I guess, addressing some shared common security challenges. What do you think are the prospects of deepened security cooperation through these kinds of mechanisms? I mean, there's already one now established between Australia, Indonesia, and India. Um, we saw it, I think, more or less kick off either uh, some time ago uh, at, the, at the United Nations when foreign ministers of three countries got together. Do you see potential for military, military cooperation to address, say, uh, maritime security issues or... Uh, other kinds of non-traditional security challenges? Yes, absolutely. Look, it's always a balance between, you know, the enthusiasm for ideas within trilateral and quadrilateral arrangements and then the realities of how much bandwidth, you know, our good colleagues at the foreign affairs and defence departments have in order to be able to engage in these activities. So one good thing is I know that the India-Australia-Indonesia trilateral hopefully will be elevated to a leaders' summit. Um, I don't think that's been confirmed yet, but I think the last update was that that's going down that track. I think it's really critical because we're three Indian Ocean countries and we need to be looking at our investment in maritime security within that region, um, not just for so-called non-traditional security issues, piracy and whatnot, or environmental security, but just to be able to work together um, you know, as custodians, as as the particularly with Australia, as the wealthier countries in that Indian Ocean rim. Um, if we provide that sense of leadership, we can strengthen the Indian Ocean Rim um, Association. Those are important things that I think these three countries can do. The other trilateral I argued for in an ASPE um, article not that long ago was a Indonesia-Australia-France trilateral. And the argumentation for that is that we are the three countries in the Indo-Pacific that actually share territory in both the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. So it gives these three countries a unique outlook in in having to be able to divide their resources between two oceans and then work together. And I think that gives them a unique perspective. Also, France being a maritime dominant military, Australia also having very abundant naval resources, have the ability to be able to help support the Indonesian Navy and or non-military assets, the Coast Guard as well, in order to be able to reduce its sense of strategic vulnerability in its archipelago. But again, it's about a sense of 
shared unique perspective, but shared responsibility amongst middle powers in the Indo-Pacific. So Indonesia right now is in the midst of election season. And the country is going to be entering elections in February 2024, with President Jokowi concluding his term in October next year. What has been his biggest legacy on the bilateral relationship? Mm, Do you really want to know my answer to this? Of course. I think it's a reality check. So I think we had the golden years under President Idiono. I mean, we spied on him and his wife. And to the degree that he could, he kept that from spiraling out of control. We signed the Lombok Treaty, you know, 2.0 in 2013, 2014, got that all squared away. Still came to ASPE, by the way, afterwards. He still came to ASPE. I mean, it was a president that gave the first address to both houses of parliament. You know, he was personally committed to having a very good relationship, stable relationship with Australia. He was someone that was outward looking. And I think we got used to, and if not spoilt, this idea that an Indonesian president would always be like that. And when Jokowi came along, myself included, a lot of us analysts thought, hey, this is going to be an opportunity for Indonesia to be able to flex its muscle on the international scene. It's going to be a president that's going to be investing in democratic institutions. It's going to be good for Australia. And what did we get instead? We had an Indonesian president that was rightly focused on a lot of domestic needs and infrastructure within the country, but also a president that was not unafraid to upset Indonesia with the assertion of its own laws. For instance, the execution of the Bali you know, two of the Bali Nine, um, unfortunately. So there's a mixed bag there. And I think what happened was Jokowi was a reality check that maybe we needed. We needed to remind ourselves that an archipelago of 278 million people with about 10% of the population under the the so-called poverty line, you know, that's the entire population of Australia, that this country actually has many needs that we maybe forgot about. In particular, you know, infrastructure is just one of them. With a young population and the need to be able to deal with an industry that's increasingly relying on artificial intelligence. Shikoi is tasked with the with having to make sure that these young people are adequately educated, that they can actually have a dividend, that demographic dividend that a young population will give him before the population ages. That's as much as Shikoi has tried to do. I'm not saying he's done the best job, but at least as a president, he's reminded us of what Indonesia's real circumstances are, that an Indonesian president, whether it's been Jokowi or the one that's coming into the door in 2024, will have the same homework, that economic growth, development, stability will always be number one for any Indonesian president. And add to that list, of course, as you would know, sovereignty. That is a great answer, and I completely agree with you. You know, Yudhiyono was also concerned about these key issues, but of course, he he was also... um, very interested in Indonesia's reputation overseas, right, mm. and its role um, in international forums. And we don't know who's going to replace Jokowi. I mean, there are three candidates right now. But in any case, all three will face the same exact challenges that Jokowi has. And arguably a lot worse, given that the effects of climate change are very, very much felt in Indonesia. So it's 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 a lot of stuff going on in the bilateral relationship. It's, it's never going to be boring. We can only hope that there is no strategic divergence and we shall continue to work against it as against strategic divergence. Or if there is strategic divergence, how can we work with it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Gatra. It's my pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>